Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. As a teenager, I was convinced that a spirit of false prophecy had attached itself to my neck. This spirit's name, according to one of our youth group leaders, was Python, after the Pythia or Oracle of Delphi. I did not think that the Python, the great serpent of the earth's navel slayed by Apollo, had deigned to visit itself upon me, but I believe that one of its ilk had wrapped its serpentine body around my spine to whisper vaticinations into my ear. You see, I had the spiritual gift of prophecy, as a multiple-choice questionnaire I filled out at church assured me, and it was only natural that the enemy would seek to subvert the Lord's work. Occasionally, when in prayer or at worship, I would feel a tightening in my neck, a quick little spasm reminding me of Python's presence. I bind you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, someone would say over me, anointing me with frankincense oil. By the power and authority of his blood, I cast you off. Sometimes I would attempt to cast Python into the sea or the abyss. I could do this, of course, having been granted with all other believers the power to bind and to loose, to trample serpents and scorpions. And I should add that, having been sealed by the Holy Spirit, I was not possessed, but merely oppressed. This was nothing so dramatic as exorcism proper, just your workaday spiritual warfare. Back then, I attended a largish, mostly healthy, non-denominational church in small-town Indiana. We were garden-variety evangelicals and not part of the Pentecostal, charismatic, renewalist stream in American Christianity. We believed in the charisms of the Spirit, of course, but speaking in tongues during a worship service would have earned removal by an usher rather than a chorus of amens. The Pentecostals were the people with the big white church on the north end of town who had spent tens of thousands of dollars to erect a 50-foot-tall cross that bathed the highway in red neon at night. How then had my church's spiritual imagination been colonized by the taxonomies of Pentecostal demonology? The answer, I believe, is Frank Peretti. I'm joined in the studio today by my friend and colleague, Mr. Justin Dean Lee. Justin teaches writing at the University of California, Irvine, where he also earned his MFA in creative writing in 2014. He has published fiction and nonfiction in Ziziva, Vice's Terraform, First Things, The Los Angeles Review of Books, ABC's Religion and Ethics, The New Haven Review, The Smart Set, Flaunt Magazine, and others. And he's currently columnist and literary editor at Arc Digital. Justin is joining me here today to discuss in part, the piece that I opened with, which is an essay that he wrote called The Art of Spiritual Warfare, which was placed in First Things in their recent uh, print edition. And Justin's joining me to talk about this piece and really to talk about the question 
of the role of fiction in the life of a Christian, the role of fiction. Is there a place for fiction, particularly is there a place for good fiction in the life of a Christian? And Justin and I are both speaking out of an evangelical uh, background, but we'll be talking in general about that question. What is the role of good literature in the life of a Christian? Uh, I open this essay with your pretty provocative opening, which I take to be true. You're talking about yourself as a teenager. This is not a fictional piece, right? No, this is no, an essay. This is, this is this is real, yeah. This is real. And so you describe this opening scene, or in this opening scene, you describe the belief in what you later in the piece call territorial spirits, or spirits that can attach themselves to a person in the way that you describe feeling this python or this uh, emissary of python uh, attached to your neck. And, and what you do in the piece, which is so interesting to me, is you connect all of this sort of spiritual warfare imagery that was normal for you at your sort of garden variety evangelical church to the fiction of Frank Peretti. Could you explain that connection and tell us a little bit about who Frank Peretti is? Yeah, so Frank Peretti uh, published his first book, in, I think it was 87, um, This Present Darkness. And it was really the first uh, of what became a really popular um, subgenre of Christian fiction called Christian thriller. And it had really never been done before. Um, I mean, certainly Christians read thriller fiction, uh, but there, uh, there was never really thriller fiction that was written specifically for Christians mm. uh, until Peretti. And so there's this kind of gaping hole in the market and that he filled and was rewarded handsomely for. What was Peretti's background? Yeah, so prior to this, he, he had been a Pentecostal Assemblies of God pastor okay. uh, for a period of time uh, before his writing career launched in earnest. And I remember, I mean, you know, if you're growing up evangelical, um, I mean, we had all these books. I mean, these were yeah. big, big books. I remember, I mean, they were literally big books, hundreds of pages, right? And I remember, I want to say... Everyone in my family probably read them. They were probably read out loud to us as kids, maybe at a certain age. Is that true? Your yeah. family? You grew up with these books yourself? Yeah, and he had a children's series as well. I, okay, now the, I did. The Cooper Kids series. I love the children's series. Yeah, no, I did too. Okay, and these are some of my favorite. The Door in the Dragon's Throat. <laughs> that was some good titles. The Tombs of Anak. Those I are some of my favorite books I still up. remember a bit of, I don't know if you'd say trivia or advice from Anak. <laughs> Uh, that uh, if you ever find yourself in a labyrinth, yeah. you, you keep your hand on the left wall, and so long as you keep your hand on the left wall <laughs> as you're walking, you will eventually get out of the labyrinth. That book was terrifying <laughs> for a young person. I remember it just being unbelievably dark, and then there's like a demon that's loose or something I, in the tomb. I okay, only remember the bit of advice. Loose. That's the only thing I remember You just remember how to get out of yeah. You remember the one form of instruction coming out of a labyrinth. Okay, so I do remember these children's books. I never personally, as a child or, or a young person in our house, even though they were, we probably had multiple copies of these books. Um, I never read them myself, but I knew them. My sisters read them. My mom read them. I think my dad read them. They were extremely popular, as you say. They sold, must have sold millions of copies. A touchstone moment for what was called Christian fiction. Yeah, you were saying something about as a thriller. I mean, these are pretty dark things, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like the this present darkness. What is the what's the plot? Or what's the what's the story about? Yeah, so I, I'll just read the summary from the piece. 
So this present darkness concerns a small town beset by demonic forces that intend to use the local college as a base of operations in a global conspiracy to establish the new world order. The human villains under demonic sway include corrupt civil servants, an apostate megachurch pastor, an international oligarch with ties to the United Nations, and a liberal psychology professor who seduces students into devil worship <laughs> through new age, medita uh, yeah, <laughs> new age yeah. meditation and implants false memories of, you guessed it, sexual abuse. Oh my gosh. It's a synthesis of 1980s fundamentalist anxieties. Yes, it um. absolutely is. <laughs> I mean, the college town just... Uh... Got it. It's got to be a college town. So our, our heroes include a downtrodden but unremittingly faithful pastor of a yeah. tiny church and a couple of scrappy investigative reporters who, through angelic intervention, uncover and confront the globalist conspiracy afoot in their town. Um, behind every misdeed is a caricatural demonic puppeteer whose appearance and name matches its function, and cheering on every act of righteousness is a seven-foot-tall, Thor-chested angel with blue eyes and golden hair. Really? Blue eyes? Wow. So, so okay. Justin Dean Lee has blue eyes. I don't know if this is a, I, a connection here. Thor-chested is a good description. Okay, so there are personalist demons everywhere. Yeah. Where there are bad things, there is a demon there. Mm-hmm. Now, in the piece, what you ultimately do is is, is sort of describe how... Frank Peretti's Christian fiction is really bad fiction. Yeah. Okay. But you also connect it with um, this theology. Uh, there's a moment in the piece where you uh, quote an interview with Peretti in which he apparently is shocked and sort of horrified that people took these uh, thrillers, these novels, as almost like playbooks I mean, this is like follow the left wall, almost like mm -hmm. playbooks of how to deal with territorial spirits and how yeah. to wage spiritual warfare. That you said that this is almost like lockstep with the Pentecostal demonology that was uh, really popular at the time, and yeah. which he was actually connected to. Yeah, it's called strategic level spiritual warfare. Okay, so a specific name, yeah, and was extremely popular. And by that, I just mean uh, it's what people thought was the case, right? Yeah. Which is the point of how you open this piece. You're a young person, youth group leaders have sort of imbibed the same idea, and so you're envisioning this, um, this demon attaching itself to your neck, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in the piece, you, again, you highlight this moment in which he seems to disavow that he, is, he was not trying to give some playbook, but he's just writing stories. Christians have this, have this habit, at least evangelical Christians, and it's easy to talk <clears throat> about our tribe, um, but you know, like, yeah, everyone should be critical of their own tribe, at least first. Our tribe has a history, I think you say in this essay, of dealing with fiction in a way that is didactic, or uh, dealing mm -hmm. with fiction in a way that has to, has to be instrumental to some other effect. Like, you read this because it's going to show you what to do or how to live in a really sort of one-for-one -one or a really direct way. The evangelicals are, are sort of always concerned with, well, what is fiction for? Like, is this a waste yeah. of time? We're always pretty skittish about something that's, you know, fake, untrue. Mm -hmm. What's the point of this? Uh, I can think of people in my past who have been like, why would you spend time reading that? You should be reading history. You should be reading things that are real. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe you could talk about the sort of how you see the evangelical relationship with fiction in general, uh, in maybe a bigger picture way or historically or, or, or whatever you think that those connections are. One of the, uh, the writers that I quote in the piece is a scholar named James Van Wyck, who, who works on uh, 19th century evangelicalism and uh, literary history. 
something he writes is that uh, evangelicals retain an old mid-19th century understanding of fiction as a utilitarian instrument. Mm. A work of fiction does something to you. They want fiction to make you think right, feel right, and act right, to guide you on your pilgrimage to heaven. It has to tell you how to be. Yeah. Uh, in a pretty direct way. And tell is the is the right word. And, and make the distinction. What do you mean? Yeah. So, you know, we, you talk to fiction writers who care about craft. You know, one of the you know very common pieces of advice you get is show, don't tell. And... Um, you know, show is, you know, you, you want to uh, create an experience for the reader uh, as opposed to simply deliver propositional messages. So uh, evangelicals really from the beginning uh, of evangelicalism um, expect their fiction to tell them um, what is true, to tell them how to be, rather than to, you know, to use a fancy word, rather than in- incarnate uh, mm. what is true about how we should be in the world. Okay, so we know plenty of unbelievably sincere evangelicals who feel that way. Um, it's not just a bad faith argument. It may be an argument we would disagree with, and hopefully we can articulate that. But but what is it about evangelicalism or our own history as a tribe? Um, I mean, surely there is something about evangelicals at our base that is just uh, just unbelievably earnest. People need the gospel. People need to, you know, so much is confusing in the world. So much um, we're sort of anti-religious in all the mm-hmm. ways we imagine Catholics to be. Mm-hmm. Um, Anti-ornament, anti, um, you know, statues, anti, like this idea that maybe other traditions would have that art and mystery and these kind of things it sounds suspiciously vague, ambivalent leaving maybe too much to chance for an evangelical mm-hmm. who understands that life is really about this direct, immediate relationship with Jesus and knowing your Bible and living honestly in those terms and telling your neighbor uh, that they can have the same direct, immediate relationship with Jesus. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a fair description of you know what's a widespread evangelical sentiment. Mm. And... Uh, the, the problem is that that sentiment is not Christian. Ooh. Explain. So if we, if, we, if we unpack that sentiment, um, it's deeply utilitarian, and it is deeply individualistic. Okay, and when you say utilitarian, you just mean... When I say utilitarian, just very loosely speaking, you know, how can this be used? Um, you know, how can a particular thing be instrumentalized to to affect the greatest good for the greatest number. So if something has value, it has to be useful to some yeah. clear and immediate purpose. Yeah. Um, so fiction, if it's going to have value, if we should have, if we should take the unbelievably long time, no one reads anymore. Apparently, that's not true actually. But um, the time it takes to engage these things, um, what use is it? What is this doing for you? We, we want that immediate result or a clear uh, description of what the use value is of yeah. this thing. And fiction, it does not, in its higher forms, does not readily offer that. You describe it as showing, maybe higher forms of literature show rather than tell. And we want you to tell us what the point mm-hmm. is of me reading through this book. Yeah. And, you know, and my point is not that there are no uses to, you know, for good, for good literature. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there are very obvious... Um, benefits to to cultivating your mind and cultivating, you know, to, to immersing yourself in good narrative. 
and we can get into those in a moment. But the, um, the, the point is that that's just scratching the surface of what art is and, and of what beauty is. You made a claim, though, that it's not Christian. Yeah. So maybe uh, explain that a little bit. You also used a phrase, incarnational, before. And, uh, I mean, we know, if we know our Bibles, you know, Jesus is, uh, is the incarnation of the Word, right? It becomes flesh, um, walking around, uh, talking, uh, accessible in this world, right? So what, is, what are you saying is more Christian about a, a type of, maybe, of literature or fiction um, that is less telly and more showy, that is more about... Um, maybe the sensory experience or um, this idea of incarnation. Yeah, so, I mean, we could just go back to the Gospels okay. uh, if, if we want to. I mean, the Gospels are very earthy. Uh, they, are, they are very, uh, very concerned um, with actual people, uh, with uh, actual experiences uh, that are visceral, that are concrete. And, and it's that concrete particular you know, through that concrete particular that the universal uh, and the transcendent is accessed. I mean, the whole point of the gospel is, is that God becomes concrete, mm-hmm. right? Uh, uh, and in our terms, right? It becomes visible, accessible, speakable, touchable, everything, right? You're saying that what God thinks is fundamental to his revealing himself is this concrete thing. And mm-hmm. you're trying to make a distinction that, let's just say, bad fiction... Uh-huh. or instrumentalist, uh, uh, didactic, you need to do this, so it tells you how to live, propositional, uh, teachy fiction, is not concrete in that same way. Yeah, so just as an illustration, I, I'll read from uh, Flannery O'Connor's uh, the, the Nature and Aim of Fiction, a uh, lecture she gave. I think we have to begin thinking about stories at a much more fundamental level, So I want to talk about one quality of fiction, which I think is its least common denominator, the fact that it is concrete, and about a few of the qualities that follow from this. We'll be concerned in this with the reader in his fundamental human sense, because the nature of fiction is in large measure determined by the nature of our perceptive apparatus. The beginning of human knowledge is through the senses, and the fiction writer begins where human perception begins. He appeals through the senses, and you cannot appeal to the senses with abstractions. It is a good deal easier for most people to state an abstract idea than to describe and thus recreate some object that they actually see. But the world of the fiction writer is full of matter, and this is what the beginning fiction writers are very loath to create. They are concerned primarily with unfleshed ideas and emotions, They're apt to be reformers and to want to write because they are possessed not by a story, but by the bare bones of some abstract notion. They are conscious of problems, not of people, of questions and issues, not of the texture of existence, of case histories, and of everything that has a sociological smack, instead of with all those concrete details of life that make actual the mystery of our position on Earth. Okay, now that, it's a lot, but... That begins to make things, I think, a little clearer. So she is talking about uh, good fiction is concerned with this concrete. Later on, she describes it. Uh, the world is very 
dusty because it's the human world, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we are made of dust, right? So she is this very Christian thinker who's also this great fiction writer. And she is saying the way in which human beings actually perceive the world is through their senses, is through the concrete, mm -hmm. is through, you know, sight, smell, all the things, right? The true fiction writer is someone who embraces that rather than tries to skirt it or go around it in mm -hmm. order to deliver a message, right? Um, and so in evangelicalism there is the desire to always deliver a message to mm -hmm. to be preachy in some way right to, to get to the point and she's saying um fiction explicitly she's not using the terms of evangelicalism but she's saying fiction explicitly works against that mm -hmm. um and i think the line you ended there with the actual mystery what, what is this this yeah the actual mystery of our position on earth and she talked about the texture of existence, right? And if we're thinking about that in, in this connection, this Christian connection, as you were saying, good literature is Christian or is, is bad fiction is not Christian. Um, what you're saying is it's not Christ-like. Yeah. It's not concrete in the way that Christ is textured, in the way that Christ is walking, breathing, sensorily, uh, available to the people in the first century in the Gospels, as we even can read them there. And so she's even making that connection that a good approach or the true sort of fiction writer or world of literature is, is almost Christological, is, is embracing mm. the infleshness, the texture of our existence in the same way Jesus of Nazareth is God's embracing of that concrete world of our world. Is that, is that too much? Is that yeah, no, no, that's, <laughs> I mean, no, that's exactly right. Uh, it's, you know, fiction is, you know, when it's operating as fiction, mm. it, and this is true um, in a more general sense with all art, uh, is it's necessarily incarnational and sacramental uh, because it's created. You know, w when we think about, you know, the story of Christ, um, the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, um, you know, I mean, that is a story in, in the fullest sense. Uh, it is a narrative. And we know, we know it has meaning. We know that there's a message about salvation, about, you know, our fallenness and our restoration uh, to union with the Father. But we don't begin there. We don't begin with those propositional statements about what it means. We begin with the experience of the narrative, walking through, um, experiencing the narrative. You know, the, this is why the, the different gospel writers have different focuses. You know, they, they care more about different aspects of that, that narrative. And so they're creating different experiences for the reader, which is why in John you get you know, the, the heavier focus on, on miracles. They even structure their narratives in, in different ways. So, okay, if we were going to broaden that a little bit then. So evangelicals, just as a tradition, maybe much more interested in propositional knowledge, um, yeah. the truth-telling part. Mm -hmm. um, you're saying the Gospels would challenge that as the even primary way in which God um, yeah. has actually engaged the world. Not that it's not there. Um, Jesus preaches plenty of times mm -hmm. very clear propositional claims about himself and his person, certainly the apostles later on. But maybe there's something in our impulse to sort of get to the end. Like, well, okay, yeah. what's the... Get to the deliverable, mm -hmm. get to the, the use value of the gospel narrative. Yeah. Um, in some ways, almost skipping the experience of the actual disciples or the crowds or mm -hmm. everyone else who's actually inhabiting the world at the time Jesus is. We, we kind of know better because we've been told the ending, and so we just want to kind of jump to that. And yet what you're saying, and I think what Flannery O'Connor is saying, 
is that's not actually how we know anything. Mm-hmm. Um, we engage and only know the world through our senses. We we don't actually live at the level of abstraction day to day, right? That everything is incarnate. Everything is, uh, you used the word uh, sacramental, um, which I understand to mean that all the concrete things of the world are expressions of a good God um, yeah. that ultimately, with the right eyes to see, as Jesus might say, uh, point back to that God and yeah. that goodness. Um, yeah, everything is filled with his presence. So it's there, and we're maybe trying to extract it in mm. this like hasty, well, what does that mean? And, and it can't have two or three meanings. It needs to have this one meaning. Mm. It needs to be... It reminds me of, of, of what Plato says in the Republic. You know, Plato in the Republic famously says, you sort of, you know, get rid of the poets. Because in Plato's view, it's dangerous for people to be um, influenced by fiction. It's dangerous mm. for people to be influenced by fiction because fiction sometimes in and of itself doesn't tell you what you must do with this, right? Mm-hmm. It's this experiential knowledge. It's this, um, uh, Aristotle's later going to call it um, a cathartic uh, form of knowledge. Well, and, and the closer you are to the concrete particular yeah. you know, in fiction, you know, the closer you are to the way things are, uh, knowing it intuitively, and, and this threatens the noble lie. Because, okay, evangelicals yeah. think that the world is a disaster, and yeah. so maybe they would say, um, why would you reproduce that world, which we already know from our experience is fallen, corrupted mm-hmm. by sin, um, irredeemable outside of the belief in the gospel and the renewal through Christ? Um, why continue to uh, indulge the particulars of a fallen world as some form of art? Yeah, I think the simplest answer is... You know, if you actually believe in the Holy Spirit and the workings of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Spirit of Christ um, guiding the writers um, of the documents that become the New Testament mm. and the Old Testament, those writers are concerned under the inspiration of the Spirit with those particulars, um, with those often gruesome details. And so Christ himself is obviously concerned with those details and the representation of those details in in very fine particularity and finely chosen, not just simply this uh, profu- profusion of naturalistic details, but uh, specifically chosen detail. It is artful. It, it yeah. has craft to it. It has the, and you're saying it has the art or the craft of the spirit. Yeah, um, and Flannery O'Connor would, uh, it describes it in the same essay as, um, you know, it's the truthfulness of the essential which creates movement. Whoa. And which is, I, I know, is the kind <laughs> the of thing that... The truthfulness of the essential which creates movement. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. That sounds like an abstraction. And um, Okay, the truthfulness of the essential which creates movement. But, but it's really simple once you begin to unpack it. Okay. So, so the, way that, the way that fiction, the way narrative is true, uh-huh. is that the details that are chosen are just the right details. I see. And um, that allow for narrative propulsion, uh, allow for the... Uh, the, the reader to come to understand um, deeply cause and effect, um, you know, of, of subjects uh, in the narrative. And uh, if you have too much detail or the wrong kinds of detail, it stalls the narrative. Um, it's, uh, it becomes unreadable. 
And, you know, a lot of realist, naturalistic fiction is absolutely just preposterously awful. And this is something that <laughs> O'Connor like writes con- against. Contemporary, well, or like contemporary novels about yet another um, dissolution of someone's marriage and middle class life. Yeah. 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 And, and every single detail. You know, right. And it's meant to be that. profound because it's just true. It just, yeah. it's not looking away and it's just tedious. Here is, here is a catalog of all the things. Here is why we got divorced. <laughs> um, okay. So maybe evangelicals will be like, yay. Um, so it isn't just, oh yeah, the more you indulge in a just pointless heap of naturalistic details. Well, this is just the way people are. That, that's a justification mm-hmm. of art is not, well, this is just the way people are. Um, yeah. But that there is an, an artful construction for Aristotle, right? The, the good plot is an organism that is a living organism. Yeah. That one thing follows, if only, um, as it does in the gospel, if only in hindsight, right? Uh, yeah. That one thing necessarily is connected to the next thing, like a ligament and bone. Yeah. Um, well, and, and even in the, the end of the book of John, uh, we have, you know, this, uh, this statement that, uh, this kind of this grandiose statement that if all uh, the things that Christ had done, you know, were to be written down, there might not be enough books in the whole world to cover it. And so obviously John is self-aware that he is being selective. That's fascinating. So you're almost taking that as sort of a manifesto of his artfulness. Yeah. A declaration that this has been crafted, not less true, in fact, more true, because not falling into the fallacy of naturalism for naturalism's sake. Yeah. Well, this is every word, breath that anyone said near, around, uh, in the same time as Jesus Mm -hmm. was walking around, and thus it should all, et cetera, et cetera, have the same value. But that there is, as you said, uh, for Christians, a Holy Spirit-led artfulness Mm -hmm. about the narrative, uh, the narrative power and the narrative shape of the Gospels themselves. If, if we're going to move from the gospel, so, I mean, you could get most Christians to be like, yeah, the gospels are pretty yeah. good. <laughs> well, so, so the, yeah, but if we we're going to, but if we're going to move yeah. into like the world of just literature in general, or if you were to try to justify why people should read Dostoevsky or why they should read, uh, you, you mentioned a list of authors that do not appear in what used to be called Christian bookstores. <laughs> so, so there yeah. are no Christian bookstores left, but... Um, had you gone into a Christian bookstore, you remark, you would have to take a machete to get through um, sort of the the overwhelming amount of bad art yeah. of the Thomas Kincaid's and the, um, oh, you have, I almost want to read that line, but you talk about the precious moments, figurines, you talk about, you talk about pastel tackiness, um, and then you say, and it, had you gone into this um once upon a time, everybody, there were Christian bookstores. Had you gone into this Christian bookstore, you would never have found there uh, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Bulgakov, Flannery O'Connor herself, Goethe, Schiller, Bunyan, maybe Bunyan. Maybe Bunyan. You're going to find Pilgrim's Progress, but not all of Bunyan. But, so, I mean, <laughs> you will know that Pilgrim's Progress is there to be found had you the wherewithal and the machete to find it. Okay, okay. You still have to get through the pastel yeah. uh, tapestries. Uh, you would not find David Foster Wallace. I like that you mentioned Graham Greene, Eva Lenoir, Marilyn Robinson. So authors that you and I know are, are deeply Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hawthorne, Cormac McCarthy, Walker Percy. Um, so your point is that, I mean, evangelicals sort of created the this the Christian bookstore we're talking about here. Um, and you're saying, 
Okay. Even if we uh, would love if some literary person like yourself um, explains to us in even more interesting ways the value of the Gospels. I mean, we would mm-hmm. be like, great, Apologetics 102, you know, like give me yeah. more to arm myself to justify to the haters why the Gospels are worth their time. But is it a bridge too far? H- how do we make that bridge then from the Gospels, which are Holy Spirit-led works mm-hmm. of art, to uh, even if they're Christian people, um, mere fiction or even good literature why should christians why should we have ever expected good literature to appear in christian books so 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 let me let me backtrack real quick sure. and and complete a point that i was trying Sorry. to make earlier yeah. but you know we uh unraveled from i believe that you know the the true the true fiction writer the tr- the true artist mm. uh, who writes fiction uh is in in a very essential sense uh, imitating Christ in the act of writing good fiction that cares about the concrete particular, that cares about you know the sensuous details that bring something to life, mm. and that there's something that is deeply God honoring in that, that recapitulates you know what the Spirit's doing through the the writers of uh, the various books of Scripture. And and so this and this is that um, sort of Tolkien's point in on fairy stories, right? The the idea of the artist. Or even human beings in general, but the artist as sub-creator, uh-huh. that it's a our participation in an act of creation. Like you said, it's not an original, it's not ex nihilo, yeah. um, it's not God, but it is um, imitative of God and of the act of creation to bring life and shape from formlessness, from void, uh-huh. from let's just say a, a formless void of a pile of naturalistic details, yeah. right, of just... Life having so much information onslaught all the time, but unshaped, unformed. We're all overwhelmed with our phones. We're all overwhelmed with the news cycle, and and so you're saying the art or or the role of art and maybe of literature here is this imitation of the spirit's work in bringing life to that kind yeah. of heap of matter. Yeah. In that way, and if a if a person was to say, look, I got a, I, who has time for literature? Um, mm-hmm. Maybe if you're in college, you can study these things. Great, Justin, you teach these things. But how would you justify that uh, grown adults who are Christian should take the time to read good literature that is this kind of artful shaping, this kind of all the things we're talking about? Why, why should Christians read more literature? Because it makes you more human. Makes you more human. Which means it makes you more like Christ. Hmm. You know, everyone who, you know, actually thinks that we are in any meaningful sense separate from animals. You know, that we're not just beasts. You know, that there's something deeper about what human, humanity is. Right. You know, is going to talk about our faculties of mind. Um, and the way the mind represents itself to itself is through the senses. You know the the way the way we understand what it is to be human is is through thinking about you know the actual physical details of what we are. So you're saying it's an act of self-reflection, but again we have this understanding of the fallen nature of human beings. Mm-hmm. Of so why spend more time acquainting ourselves, even even if it does produce this form of self-reflection where we could understand ourselves a little bit better? What does that yield that we would understand ourselves or our neighbor? Or maybe that's yeah. obvious, but I well, mean, yeah, I, I mean, it it should be obvious. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, and this is where you know we can we can dig into some of the crassly utilitarian aspects of what reading good literature does versus what reading 
um, bad literature doesn't do. So, okay. so, so, so one of the problems okay. is that even in this idea that that there's utility in you know propositional garbage fiction, you know that even even that uh, that valuation of utility is, is still misplaced because there's not a whole lot of utility there. Good. And it's back to the beginning of your essay. It didn't seem to help you cast Python or who whatever that was on your neck into the yeah. abyss, right? Yeah. So you tried to use and do what you had read in this very sort of didactic, useful, Christian sort of fiction, uh-huh. spiritual warfare manual, and not the effect that it was meant to have. Or even in that use value, it, it wasn't convertible to what it was trying to do. Yeah. Not to totally distract the point, but, you know. And I don't want to give the impression that, you know, I read Frank Peretti when I was a teenager <laughs> and then, you know, came to this conclusion about... That that has its own history, you know, in particular personalities at my church and and, sure, and all sure, that. Sure. Okay, okay. But this idea that, and this is the kind of thing that evangelicalism is always doing, and particularly certain forms of evangelicalism, taking something that's clearly true from Scripture, mm-hmm. um, and decontextualizing it, and then building a system out of just this one thing. Um, right. So if anyone's confused, we are. We are Bible believing. There are <laughs> demons in the world. Yeah. We are, for Justin and myself at least, um, the world is a very crowded spiritual place. Um, we're not rationalists that think, oh, you know, these things are not real or they're just metaphors or something like that, yeah. right? And and there are orders within the heavenlies. You know, I mean, it's very, it's, it's transparent, you know, for anyone who studies, um, <laughs> anyone who studies New Testament stuff closely, uh, you know, when Paul in Ephesians is talking about principalities and powers and dominions, etc., you know, he is talking about different classes of spiritual entities that have different functions uh, and different roles. Uh, so it is obviously true that there is a hierarchy. Mm. And just like, you know, we imagine certain angels having certain functions, mm. you know, which is clearly outlined in part, not in, you know, not exhaustively sure, in sure. Scripture. But... There's this tendency within evangelicalism to take that information and then try to make use of it hmm. in, in this particular way. And, and then we think about prayer as this, as this useful instrument. And we know we're supposed to pray against powers and principalities. Right. Then we extrapolate from that and get the idea of strategic level spiritual warfare where simply because there are demonic powers that, that sit over regions... Um, you know, within this kind of fallen angelic hierarchy, fallen demonic hierarchy, then the Lord's work in the world must proceed, must proceed um, kind of stepwise uh, mm-hmm. the, way, the way a human army would proceed in conquering. It, it's almost yeah. like a video game where, we're you, like where you, you, you we're conquer like the out. little bosses before you get to the yeah. big bad territorial strongman. Yeah, right. So evangelicals rush into... Uh, make use value even of somewhat fairly obscure um, passages mm-hmm. in Scripture and try to map the heavens yeah. in a very clear way. But then you were starting to make the point that even if Christian fiction, um, whether or not anything should even be called Christian fiction, or you're saying all truly good artful fiction is ultimately Christological or incarnational or Christian in some basic mm-hmm. sense, um, but you were saying for those who are like still looking for some bottom line justification, mm-hmm. you were saying there is an actual uh, discernible use value in what you were saying about reading literature, 
making you more human or more aware of yourself or what it means to be human in the world. And wh where were you going with that, with the, the use value that you do see, even if it is crass, um, but that is there's good evidence for? Yes. Yeah, so I would say two different points. Okay. Um, the first is that, you know, there, there are plenty of studies that show that what we tend to think of as literary fiction versus commercial fiction. Um, literary fiction, uh, when you read it, it, it does something different to you neurologically uh, that makes you more empathetic, that makes you uh, better able to discern the, the intentions of other people, for instance, hmm. to, to better read facial expressions. Reading literary fiction helps you to be more empathetic, better able to do those things. Yeah. Better able to read facial expressions. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's just stuff, stuff as simple media. as that. Hmm, but a, a sensory media, nonetheless. Yeah, and, and that's because when you're reading fiction, uh, it is, so this is how hypnotic induction works. If you ever like watch like a hypnotist show, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, um, you you have these, you know, the the hypnotist will talk about have you imagine yourself in this peaceful place, mm. hearing a certain peaceful sound, mm. touching you know the grass, and and hitting these different sensuous strokes, mm -hmm. you know, to to address all the five senses. Mm. Um, because that activates, you know, this part of the mind that allows for hypnotic induction to happen. Very similar things happening in reading. Uh, hmm. when, when we're hitting, you know, again, what Flannery O'Connor says, you know, the essential that creates movement. Right. We're hitting just the right sensuous strokes hmm. uh, that, you know, your, your brain is activating as if you're living that experience. Vicarious experience. So, and I'm thinking, again, just a, a, what Aristotle says. And catharsis is usually, I think, understood wrongly. But, um, but catharsis for Aristotle is the best art is able to produce the vicarious effect or what he calls in another context, affective communion. Mm -hmm. um, so an audience is watching a play or a tragedy in his context, right? Um, ancient Athens, we're watching a tragedy on the stage. Um, what use is this? What, why are we here? What's the point of this? Is it a diversion? Is it mere escapism? Aristotle says, no, good art uh, through sublimity, through the sensory, through all mm -hmm. the things you just described, is able to produce this effect, which he does call catharsis, which has been used in so many different ways, but which um, I think the best reading of is, a, is an ability to emotionally recalibrate your own self, right? Mm -hmm. So that there is this vicarious experience in Aeschylus, the Agamemnon, the choir, the chorus says um, a famous line that gets repeated often in ancient literature, which is um, pathe mathos, that wisdom comes only through suffering or wisdom comes only through experience, right? Which is this idea of the concrete or you don't truly learn something until you're uh -huh. in the actual scenario in which you would do that. And Aristotle takes this point to say, Someone watching a tragedy doesn't need to live out the events of the hero going yeah. through the highs and lows that they are, but they are affectively living out those events with an emotional um, capacity and an emotional intelligence that allows them to recalibrate. So the experience of catharsis for him is this ability to reflect on oneself having viewed a play or read uh -huh. a book in our context um, because you gain very real actual insight into yourself and others in the world uh -huh. um, by experiencing this work of art. 
and that that is the great sort of joy, even in watching a tragedy, right? Even in a story, right? Christians tend to always want their books to end well, right? You mm-hmm. have a great line in the essay that you wrote for First Things about the hard-boiled guy who's going to eventually become a Christian at the end, uh-huh. you know, doesn't cuss, like nobody, like everyone's uh-huh. being prepared to become magically Christian at the end, and we need this, like, it needs to be positive at the end. It can't just be this uh-huh. grim thing. And for Aristotle, it's like the worst tragedies in the world can be the most emotionally intelligent yeah. experiences for someone to see and experience themselves in a way that is um, not removed, but more mature, more reflective, more contemplative. And I think you're saying, it, which is which is part of what it means to be spiritual, is part of what it means to be... Um, a Christian who is maturing, growing, um, uh, trying to understand themselves and and live into the things they know they ought to believe, but maybe mm-hmm. struggle to live out. Um, so, would you make would would those connections work for you? That idea of uh, Flannery O'Connor and then of affective communion and of this idea that in reading a really good book, and you're saying the science backs this up, the mind really does vicariously enter into these other perspectives these uh, lewis's line is is more or less um i love literature because it allows me to live a thousand lives instead of one yeah and that yeah. we can see if you're interested in the science you can see this on a on a brain scan mm-hmm. the empathy um, being activated the um just this awareness of you you made the distinction that good literature produces that effect mm-hmm. not bad literature is, yeah. that, is that is that more or less the case? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, in in the longer version of this essay, um, which um, because of space constraints, mm. much of it had to be cut, I, I put side by side these two different uh, sections: one from Peretti and one from Stephen King. Stephen King, and who many people think of as genre writer, maybe they don't think of as as a writer's writer, but maybe probably wrote one of the best books on writing. It's called yeah. On Writing. Yeah. Um, and so you compare these passages from these two writers. I, and your point of using Stephen King maybe is that genre is not a default bad fiction category, right? right? Like you could have a, 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 a work of literature that is a thriller, uh-huh. That that genre Absolutely. doesn't that you you're not when we say literary fiction we don't just mean these boring um, contemporary novels about middle class marriages yeah. falling apart right they can be thrillers they can be spy novels they uh-huh. can be any number of things um, it's the quality of the writing itself not the genre that's in part maybe why you compare those two yeah yeah and and because uh, Peretti is often said to be the Christian Stephen King I see. that okay. that sort of thing. Because you know, what other comparison does the average person have? Because he goes dark. Because he yeah. goes dark, and he scares the heck out of people. Yeah. and and Pretty emerged in the late '80s. You know, who who's the king of horror? Who's the king of I the see. dark? I mean, obviously Himself. Stephen King. But uh, so yeah, so I compare these two these two passages. One is where we have Hank Bush, the the faithful pastor, ah, in this yes. town, and he's laying in bed, uh, having a nightmare mm. next to his wife. And so there's a description of the nightmare, and, and the description of the nightmare is incredibly vague. He's, he's being pursued by enemies. We don't mm. know what they are. We don't know what the pursuit feels like. Um, you know, we, we just get these very vague, abstract descriptions of uh, the experience of this nightmare. And, and then he wakes up, and he sees, you know, like this Halloween mask fading, you know, into the darkness of the room mm. uh, in front of him, and he smells sulfur. 
You know, so, so these are all incredibly conventional um, demonic associations. Yeah, demons are among us, right? You know, and so it's not scary. It's not moving. It's familiar. It's telling. You know, it's not showing. Hmm. And um, and it's it's simply not producing the essential that creates movement. It's not doing that. Uh, and so I compare this with a passage out of Stephen King's *The Stand*, you know, which is a incredible novel. Um, has you know one of I think one of the the greatest depictions of a saint in contemporary literature, mm-hmm. and that's of uh, Mother Abigail, Abigail Fremont, uh, this old you know very old, like I think 108 years old yes. at, at the <laughs> when the novel <laughs> set, you know, who is kind of God's chosen prophet um, after. The super flu has wiped out, you know, 98.5 percent of humanity, basically, or or more, and we we were kind of, you know, setting up for Stephen King's version, at least in this particular world, who's created his version of the Battle of Armageddon, mm-hmm. and so the the faithful, you know, the good, the intrinsically good people, um, are all gathering together in Boulder, Colorado, eventually, of course, of, as, of course, as you would, of course, when you want to go and, hiking, and and the bad guys <laughs> led by you know one of the greatest villains in all of fiction, Randall Flag, Randall Flag, all descend upon you guessed it, Las Vegas. Oh, of course, <laughs> and I should have guessed it. Anyway, so Mother Abigail, you know, has been having visions, you know, mm-hmm. and and dreams, you know, leading up to the cataclysm. And then once the cataclysm has happened, uh, she knows that she's going to have to begin moving towards Boulder and uh, that people will be drawn to her and that she'll be given this role of leadership, you know, very much like an Old Testament prophet um, verging on, you know, a judge. You know, so she's an old black woman who being that old, you know, has seen some life, Yeah, <laughs> you know, has, li- has lived through, you know, incredible racial intolerance and, and all of that stuff. And, and so when she has nightmares, she has nightmares that are concrete, that are particular, that are grounded in her personal history. Mm. And Randall Flagg enters her nightmares. And in her nightmares, he presents himself as the man with no face. And who uses particular things from her personal history, and then twists them, and and makes them demonic. So her proud, the proudest moment of her life was when she was a younger girl, and she was at a, you know, like a citywide um, gathering where people are doing musical performance and talent stuff, and and she is. Uh, called upon to play guitar and sing, and she does. It's a predominantly white audience, and they're all racists, mm. but they fall in love with her voice, with her singing, and she she wins them over and just melts their hearts. You know, and it's her proudest moment that that she has, proudest memory. You know that she was able to transcend, you know, uh, racial hatred with beauty. Mm. And so in her nightmare, she relives that, and Randall Flagg is there in the audience. And uh, the man with no face is there in the audience. And it doesn't play out the way it played out in history. It plays out uh, really horrifyingly and becomes this, you know, it basically becomes, you know, almost a minstrel act of uh, racial hatred and sexual abuse. Hmm. And, and again, told in very carefully chosen detail. Um, that's very vivid and is 
terrifying because of that, because it's so deeply personal. You know, and so she wakes up from this, you know, she learns something from it. She learns something about her enemy, the enemy that she will face. And this is something that happens in Paredes' novel as well. Hank Bush wakes up and ends up talking with his wife about how, you know, he had this dream, he had this experience of this presence, and then he thanked God for having given him a glimpse of the enemy so that he can know what he's up against. Uh, but that glimpse is vague. It's nothing. Mm. And so his thankfulness is nothing. It's vague. But Mother Abigail, you know, this section of the novel, uh, finishes with her also praying for strength and thanking God. But she's also weeping uh, because she knows how, how much what's to come is going to break her. Mm. And that whatever reward she has is not for her in this world, but it's for the people she'll care for. So it's just a, a brilliant passage. Um, they're, so they're complementary passages. Right. And one is bad art because it's not particular, because it's not concrete. Uh, it's not true to psychology. And the other is true to psychology, is true to uh, lived life, and is faithful to detail. And so the, the spiritual message, you know, the spiritual truth that's imparted, not propositionally, but through the experience of reading that passage of walking with Mother Abigail, is so much more profound you know, than the much more succinctly propositionally stated message of the scene in uh, this present darkness. And ultimately, I mean, if we as Christians are called, I I think of even just Calvin, begins the Institutes, that, you know, you can't know God without knowing yourself. You can't know yourself without knowing God. That to know Christ, to, to love Christ, is also to know ourselves better, to know even the terrors or the, the, the depths Mm-hmm. from which we are being redeemed and from which we are called to be transformed and to live differently or or even just the call that all Christians have to love thy neighbor as thyself. How could we do that unless we are regularly, humbly and patiently attempting to understand what neighbors might actually think, feel, what other people besides ourselves, how they actually experience the world. Um, how they, It just strikes me, in your example there, a conventional distinction even just between a male pastor and then uh-huh. this female um, religious figure, saint. Um, but how important that is, how yeah. important that we would be able to understand our neighbor of, of other experiences, other genders, of other, of other sort of life worlds. Um, and maybe fiction, good fiction, as you're saying, concrete, artfully crafted um, fiction can bring us into a place of vicarious experience that, let's be honest, how many relationships do we have that could bring us even uh-huh. that close? It would take a pretty profound friendship to be able to access some of the depth of the details that a good novel seems to uh, traffic in. So, so not to just appeal to the use uh-huh. value thing, um, but to just say, why is it worth Christian's time? Why is it something that we should make room to do more of? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that Christ commands it of us. And if we're capable of it, um, if, we, if we have the faculties for it, it's, it's part of what it is to live 
a life as a faithful Christian is to activate that part of our experience, that part of our existence, to broaden, deepen ourselves in that way because it, en- it enables us to love hmm. um, in, in ways that we weren't able before. We've got uh, a number of books laid out on the table before us right now, and one of them is The Vision of the Soul uh, by James Matthew Wilson. He's someone who would be very quick to express frustration that we're focused so much on utility, you right. know, and still right. kind of coming back around to this idea that you know, Christians should be reading fiction because it'll do good things, you know, because... Right, right, right. Um, and, and, and he's right to do so uh, because there's... there's a much more fundamental sense in which, you know, good fiction, good art uh, operates to uh, connect us with being itself, uh, to plug us straight into the source. Mm. So he's really committed to uh, the unity of the transcendentals, you know, truth, goodness, and beauty. Something that's so great about the particularity of good art, the particularity of good fiction in particular, is that, you know, we're, we're given a way to access the transcendent. Uh, through the imminent, which is, which is ultimately what Christ is, right. you know, the transcendent becoming imminent so that we, the imminent, can become transcendent. So maybe instead of uh, use, it's more like um, worship. Yeah, It's more Absolutely. like celebration. Mm-hmm. It's a way of rendering more glory to the one who deserves all of the glory. Yeah, and... You know, so and for, so for both of us, when someone says, well, "Why are you reading that book?" <laughs> you know, the, I mean, the yeah, we can code it in all this you sure, know fancy sure, sure. fancy blah, blah, language, blah, blah, but blah. yeah, but but ultimately it's just it feels good to do this, and, <laughs> Life and is I am the enjoyable. I am the, I am the yes. kind of creature that is made to feel good when reading these things, right. And that's sim- and and if you're not that person, there's something flawed about your humanity. <laughs> um, I, I I have no trouble saying that. Read good literature because it's beautiful, yeah. because it's joyful, because are, it's a celebration of the life you've been given. There are other reasons to do so. Sure, sure. But they are not what's most important. Right. Yeah. I think that's a good place to end our reflections and our conversation. Mr. Justin Dean Lee, thank you for joining us and discussing these things. I do um, also want to just recommend that people read your essay in First Things, which is called The Art of Spiritual Warfare. Yeah, it's in the March 2019 issue. Wonderful. And it's in the print edition, which I don't know <laughs> if anybody knows what that means. That means it's very good. <laughs> Um, Thank you so much for taking the time to join us, and I hope you will be joining us again soon. Thank you so much for joining us today, everybody. If you found any of this interesting, we do hope you will share the podcast, that you will rate us on iTunes with those five sweet stars, and, and that you will subscribe, and that you will tell your friends and your neighbors and your relatives and your mother Lois to subscribe and your sweet sweet grandmother old grandmother Eunice Eunice should definitely subscribe until next time may you live well think well and love well Godspeed